mentioned to some of you before, I've always found it astounding that I could have the Scriptures embedded in my mind when I was little and not really have any heart after God at all. And then when true conversion happens, a lot of that comes back. Seeds planted. I mean, you think, uh, I mean, let's say somebody comes in here, a visitor, they just pass through, they sit, they hear a sermon, and it seems to make no effect. And it may not immediately. But you never know what that seed's going to do. I mean, it could be 10 years down the road. They wake up in the middle of the night and they remember a passage that was mentioned. And the Lord just grips their soul with it. So truly, it is no small thing to plant the sow seed. A good seed is the Word of God. <laughs> and uh, it does its work. All right, we are returning to the, the return phase. The Jews are coming back from captivity. Now let's return to the book of Ezra. Jeremiah, is that speaker on? Can you turn it down a little? I, I hear my echo more than my brain. That's all right. That's better. That's great. It, I, I know some people want it recorded, but I just, yeah. All right, so again, review. <clears throat> Northern tribes go to captivity to where? Where'd they go? Assyria. And then 100 years later, a little over 100 years later, the southern tribes go to Babylon. And how many deportations were there? How many phases were they drugged to captivity? You're going to say it. Three. There was three deportations. Even in that, God's mercy is astounding. Even if you trace the timing of the captivity, the Lord said it was going to be 70 years so the land could have her Sabbath rest. But if you trace from the time the last people were carried away captive till the first people had opportunity to return, God was as merciful as He could have been in the whole thing. It's astounding. And so then when they return, of course, it was also three phases. Remember Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Okay, Ezra is roughly 80 years after Zerubbabel. It's spaced out. So it wasn't all one big conglomeration. They go back. They start the work. They get lax. They get the foundation laid. Here comes the prophets. Lights a fire under them. They get the temple uh, fixed up. And, and life sort of... You know how it is. It, it, we go through uh, spiritual high days. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about? You... Some victory won, or some blessing, some church event, or something. It's oftentimes right on the heels of that, the danger lurks. <laughs> There's a sense of just letting guard down. I think for them, the excitement. We have a temple. God is with us. Except, what, what is a temple without fellowship with God? It's a pile of rocks. That's all it is. It, it's useless. And so things degenerate into a shell. Now God raises up Ezra to send him back, a man who is mighty in the Scriptures. Of course, in verse 21, before they leave, he proclaims a fast. They're going to ask for God's protection. And Ezra's mindset was, I'm not going to ask for military escort. And we talked about... Nehemiah, after him, had no problem with a military escort. 
And was either one of them wrong? No. The reasoning was different. Kind of like Paul with Titus and Timothy. One of them he had to get circumcised. The other one he said, no, no way. Because of what it did to the, the message of the Word of God. And by the way, that, that, that's when we're making these kind of decisions and dealing with some of these thorny issues, what's the paramount question? What portrays God the best? What, what about the glory of God? Now, obviously, you have to know something about God to answer that question, but that, that's almost a lost question today. What's the number one question? What works? What's going to fill the building? What, what feels the best? So what? I think Ezra's reasoning process is pretty basic. He, he, he goes into the king and makes this appeal. God has raised us up. He wants us to go back. He wants to build the temple. He's trying to witness to this pagan king about the glory of God. And he felt a check in his spirit of saying, oh, by the way, can I borrow your army? And he said, no, I can't do that. And so they proclaim a fast. He was looking straightforward with them. Look, we're, we're carrying a bunch of gold and silver. We're not trained soldiers. We're going 900 miles. I think we better ask God's help. And so they have a prayer meeting. And again, the spiritual logic. I mean, does, before an arduous 900-mile journey, does it seem prudent to not eat for a couple days? Not humanly. So they pray, they ask God's help. And, uh, and they go. And we ended with kind of a loaded question. How does God lead believers in situations where there's more than one good direction? I mean, if, we, if I presented the question, how do we discern the will of God? It's, it's a big, big topic. Submission is paramount. And we better make sure there's no unconfessed sin. To pray for God's direction when I know there's sin I won't deal with is an exercise in futility. I don't want His will. So, submission to God isn't piecemeal. I mean, either He's God or He's not. So, there, there has to be the disposition of submission. There has to be the right application of the Scriptures. Prove all things, Paul writes. Hold fast that which is good. Run everything through the lens of Scripture. Have our mind renewed. And by that doesn't just mean proof texting. It means the right use of the passages. It doesn't mean pulling out one verse, but it means in context, what is that? what's the principle behind that? What is that verse actually saying? What's the mind of God on this? And so some things become evident. I know I can say, and I think all of you can, in your Christian growth, there's things 20 years ago you just said, I'd had to pray about that. And no, you, now you don't have to pray about it because it's so obviously unbiblical. You already know your mind's been renewed in that area. And that, that, that praise God for that. But then we, then we come up against areas where there's frankly more than one really good option. And so we were talking about the pillars of that. The right use of the Scriptures is paramount. There's going to be the inward sense of God's peace. And then the arrangement of external circumstances. Those are generally going to work in harmony. The scriptures have to be paramount. Sometimes the slender thread you have is the Bible. An inward feeling... And external circumstances are fighting you like crazy. But in general, and I think if we took the time to discuss major, especially major areas of leading in God's in, in our in our life, 
that God has typically accentuated that. You have to remember this. The Lord wants us to know His will. He doesn't delight at going, Oh, man, I'm going to keep Him in the dark. This is fun, isn't it, Gabriel? He wants us to know His will. He wants us to. He wants to guide us. Sometimes there's just, there has to be a laying aside of our own attempt to solve a problem and a complete dependence on God. I, I, it's funny, in my own life, I used to be a very spontaneous person before I came to Christ. Now I've become the opposite extreme. I want everything written down and planned because I don't want to misstep. That's good to a point. But there's lots of times where God's not going to show me around the corner. And I'm trying to find my rest at having every, all the steps lined up. And the Lord goes like this. Well, maybe like this. He lets me see the next step. And that's it. So we see what we're really trusting in when that happens. Well, Ezra selects 12 priests. Chapter 8, verse 24. I separated 12 of the chief of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed unto them the silver, the gold, and the vessels, even the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. So he picks these 12 priests and Levites to handle the finances. He tallies and documents the silver, gold, the vessels, uh, and the offerings were entrusted to them. And then he draws attention to the fact that they are holy unto the Lord. By the way, if you were making that trip, would you want to be the guy driving the cart full of gold? I don't know that I would. You talk about a target on your back. It was the will of God for them. So, it's interesting though, Ezra tells him, you are holy unto the Lord, and these vessels are holy too. He charges them with the responsibility of guarding those treasures until they weighed them before the chief priests, the Levites, and the chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So they take custody of the finances. I couldn't help but think the application of that to all of us, though. Uh, we talked about it last week, or well, I guess it was two weeks ago. Who are the priests in the New Testament? Every Christian. Are we on a journey? Is it dangerous? Have every one of us been entrusted with certain talents on loan from God. By talents, I don't mean physical talents. I mean talents as figuratively speaking of money. A stewardship. That have been on loan to us to give a reckoning at the end of the journey. What does that encompass? My money, my time, any ability I have. It's all on loan to me. To give an account. And you think, what, what do I really have? What do I really possess? N nothing. Now, God gives us good gifts to enjoy, don't get me wrong, but it's funny, even in this world, you say, well, I own my house. Yeah. Uh, try not paying your property taxes, and uh, you'll see who owns it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uncle Sam owns part of it, no matter what. So, all right, off they go. Excuse me. Look at, look at uh, chapter 8, verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go into Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such as lay in wait, 
by the way, and we came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. Now, that basic statement he just made covered 900 miles and months of travel through very hostile country. Now, think the the way he just said that straightforward, matter of fact, think what that showed. It's normal for God to keep his word, it's not a shock. So he just says, matter of fact, yeah, the Lord opened the door, we walked through it, the Lord brought us there. On we go, right? He recognized God's power on behalf of his people. As we serve God, we too can be aware of his power. He protects, he strengthens us to accomplish his will. If we fail to recognize his power and depend on our own strength, what happens? You know, the scary thing about that is we can actually coast like that for a while. You ever done that? I have. It's really a dependence on self. And God in His graciousness, at least what's happened to me, is He slowly lets your inward soul deteriorate until you can't stand it anymore. (laughs) And maybe it's a big event, maybe not, but it brings you to the realization, without Him I can do nothing. Nothing. Uh, Jeremiah was asked in Jeremiah 32, Lord says, I am the Lord, and He says, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for him? Do we really believe that? Is it too hard for him to give me guidance? How about this one? I I heard a preacher say long ago, and it's something I repeated to myself this week. So certain statements you hear biblically, they, they stick. Here's what it was. You are trusting in your ability to hear more than God's ability to speak. In other words, we want to be submitted, yes, but don't forget who carries the heaviest end of that responsibility. I mean, imagine I'm walking through some snake-infested wilderness with Timothy, and he's just crawling ahead of me. And he's going to do his best to walk with Dad. (laughs) But who's really doing the protecting? How much more infinitely true is that of God, you know, as we walk through this barren land? So, so yes, there needs to be a willingness to hear, but sometimes we can get so panicked over our stupidity and stubbornness that that almost becomes a God of its own. So I'm still looking at self when I do that. Still looking at self. Not God's sufficiency. You ever seen God do something that just utterly blew you away? And what really blew you away is how blown away you were. You, uh, in fact, you, you know the story. Let's turn there. This is one of my favorite stories. Acts 12. I appreciate snapshots like this because they remind us that even spirit-filled, 
persecuted Christians in the first church that existed were very human. I, I find that very encouraging. Okay, so uh, Acts 12, James is killed by Herod. Verse 3, because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Now, what do you think Peter's expecting? Peter's expecting his head to be removed from his body. But what's fascinating about this, the same Peter who denied Christ, who is now filled with the Holy Spirit, look at his reaction. They put him in prison. Verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So they're begging God, please don't take Peter also. Verse 6, when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. You see a different Peter there? I mean, if you thought you were going to be beheaded in the morning, would you be snoring between two soldiers? I, I don't know that I would. Not without, not without a reliance on the Holy Spirit. So here comes the angel. Behold, the angel of the Lord, verse 7, comes upon him and a light shined in the prison and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell from off his hands. The angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did, and saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. So Peter, Peter's thinking he's asleep or seeing a vision. He's not sure how tangible this really is. When they were past the first and second ward, they came to the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. A gate just flies open in front of him. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. So all this just happens quick. Peter's asleep. The angel, hey, get up. Boom, off they go running. Chains fall off. Doors open. They run out into the city in the middle of the night, and the angel vanishes. And now Peter's just sitting here in the city. Huh. I guess I'm out. Now what next, right? Where is he going to go? He's going to go over to the church people. When he considered the thing, verse 12, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. In those days, culturally, who is it? It's I. They didn't usually say their name. You recognize the voice. Peter says, it's me. No way. So she runs back in. Hey, Peter's out there. And they said unto her, verse 15, thou art mad. You're crazy. <laughs> Look, we're too busy in here praying. We don't have time to hear answers. You know, you're, you're nuts. You gotta be kidding me. Have you ever, have, I mean, have you ever had the experience you're, you're right in the middle praying for something and God gives an answer in the middle of praying about it? That's an astounding thing. When Peter continued knocking when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So, 
again, you have spirit-filled, believing people under persecution in the early first century, first church of Jerusalem. They're praying. God does something miraculous. Peter actually shows up knocking at the door, and they don't believe it. You're crazy, Rhoda. We're, we're, we're busy praying here. So it even happened to them. So, all right, Ezra and company, they reach Jerusalem. They take a well-deserved three-day rest. The journey's been long and tedious, a lot of work's coming. They rest three days. They give uh, the priests and Levites deposit everything into the hands of the temple priests. Give them the offerings and all the money. Everything's carefully weighed, numbered, and recorded. The priests and Levites have faithfully fulfilled their assignment, and God had faithfully protected them. And then you go to worship in verse 35. The children of those that had been carried away, which had come out of the captivity, offered burnt offerings unto the God of Israel. Now the burnt offering, again, is, is significant. The burnt offering depicted entire dedication, but it was voluntary. It's, I think it's pretty clear that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 12. And the tone of that's really something. He, you remember, he says... I beseech ye therefore, I beg you. Not, hey, listen, yield your stiff neck or God's going to beat you senseless. But the beseeching. I, this may sound simplistic, but I remember years ago praying about this concept and asking the Lord, are there things that you don't require of me as a law, but yet you are very pleased when I give. <laughs> the answer to that is yes, there are. And really, that, 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 that's more of the line Paul's taking in Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercy, because of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable, logikos, rational. In other words, the only logical... We're talking about spiritual logic here, but the only spiritually logical response to that doxology of who God is is a complete yieldedness of self. And Paul's saying, I'm begging you to think with heavenly logic, to really weigh things in the balance. And so their offering depicted, it wasn't, well, we got to go give this offering for crying out loud. We got, look, yeah, then we got stuff to do. But it was a sense of praise and thanksgiving. We want. We want to worship God. Think about, uh, okay, we're going to sing more hymns in a little bit. Why? I think those are valid questions to ask. I think we need to check ourselves on this. Do we, do we sing hymns because, you know, Second Opinions chapter 3 says, thou shalt sing three hymns before the message and one after, right? You, you, you have to do that. It's just fulfilling a duty. It's the wrong way to look at it. Hymns are like a burnt offering. They can be. A voluntary sacrifice. Yes, from my sinful self. Laid down before Him. So the returnees also give Artaxerxes' decree to the rulers of the trans-Euphrates districts. Here you go. Here's what the king says. And acting in accordance with the terms of the decree, the rulers encouraged the Jews in their work of beautifying God's house. See that in verse 36. And they delivered the king's commandment unto the king's lieutenants, to the governors on this side of the river, and they furthered the people and the house of God. They, they dove in 
It's funny what threats of death will do to your level of motivation in a pagan kingdom. And uh, they dove in and helped. And of course, the Lord used that to have his work completed there. All right, we're, we're actually, we're going to have time to get into the next lesson here. So let me just ask this question. What, what kind of things, this kind of loaded question, what kind of things might indicate when we are depending on self rather than God? I had an episode of that fixing the kitchen sink, my son will tell you, this week. There's a war raging. I didn't want to be fixing plumbing. I've never figured out how almost every plumber I know is 280 pounds, and they jam into those cabinets and fix stuff, and I can't. Never figured that one out. But what, what kind of things, what kind of things may manifest to us? We're not really walking in submission to God, trusting self. Anger. When we're getting chapped, uh, we're not, I mean, James says, what's the wisdom from above? The wisdom that's from above, it, what, how does it describe? It's first peaceable. <laughs> it's gentle. It's easy to be entreated. Don't ask me that right now. That, that's not wisdom from above. So anger. We were discussing this last night. What is, let me, in fact, while we're on it, what, what's the root of anger? From whence cometh it? Now you could say unbelief. But really, what, what's, here's what I think it boils down to. God is not giving me what I think He should be giving me. Whatever that is. My schedule's not working like I think, if God really knew how to run His universe... He would see how, how, how well-ordered my day is. And I'm really, it sounds dumb, but think about it. The funny thing, I'll just share the funny thing about the kitchen sink, and it's, it's it really, I'm, I'm frustrated how frustrated I got having to, let me, let me just explain the thought process. I don't like when most of my study gets shoved into Saturdays. So this week I had a job, I thought, I think I can work a little late and finish it on Thursday. And the Lord ordered my day perfectly. I mean, I'm talking down to the even the, the, the chunk I took out with the router where I shouldn't have worked out in the perfect spot. Everything got done. I finished the job Thursday night. And so now that means my Friday is going to go like I thought. Except it didn't. Hmm? So I spent four hours under the kitchen sink. And the whole time, I'm vexed. And I knew I was wrong the whole time. I was angry. Why? <laughs> because I was not yielded to God at that moment. That's why. There's no... What excuse, I could dress it up with excuses. There's no good excuse for that. It's unbelief. All right, so anger. What else? The eyes and me's. The who? The eyes and me's. Explain. I know how to do this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. It's eyes and then, why is this happening to me? <laughs> Remember Tozer had an article on symptomatic speech uh, talking about that, the, the eye and me disease? It's right. Because who's the focal point of that? 
Or see somebody get mad? I don't deserve to be treated like that. Now, if someone in that state doesn't usually appreciate this question, but I've said it before, so you think you deserve better treatment than the Son of God. Hmm? Well, I can ask myself the same question. So he deserved to be spit on? Hmm? Okay, so anger, me, what else? What else shows I might be trusting in self? I mean, do you th will my motivations show that? Which, by the way, that can lead to anger too. I, I'm doing this because of this reason and the Lord just undercuts it. <clears throat> what else? Expectations. Expectations. Is God ever disappointed? No, because disappointment is based on expectations that are false and He doesn't have those. We have those. I, I like to tell people God's never disappointed in you. He's grieved, but not disappointed. He never looks at you and goes, I just cannot believe you did that. I, I, I'm shocked. Frankly, I'm stunned. I, I need to take a break from you because I'm so blown away that you just, I'm blindsided, frankly, that you did that. He's grieved by it, but he's not shocked. Ever. All right, so some of those things, we get the picture. Those, but man, the flesh squirms, doesn't it? Squirms. It all comes down to submission. Are these, are these really God's hands? I, I kid you not, that morning I was, I was talking to the Lord. Lord, these are, these are your hands to use as you will today. But when he wanted those hands on a, on a wrench, I took them back. And I was miserable. <laughs> By the way, is it, uh, is it more spiritual for me to be in the office than it is fixing a sink? No. There's one issue, the will of God. Washing dishes, spiritual sacrifice, if that's where God wants me. Studying, preaching, me being up here is no more important than you being out there. I'm not saying preaching is not important, but I'm saying the issue is, what does God desire of His servants? That's all I am. In fact, I read across a statement, my wife and I are reading the biography of James Fraser, missionary to China. It's called Mountain Rain. So far, it's really good. It's been recommended to me for a while, but I finally, in fact, when I was sick, one of the things I did is I'm like, that's it. I'm finally going to order some of these books that have been on my list for years. <laughs> and so that's one thing cool about technology with a Kindle is you can order 10 books and have them in minutes. So anyway, but it quoted Hudson Taylor. And here's what he said. A little thing is a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. We tend to compartmentalize life into big things and little. And I'm not saying things aren't more important ever, but again, the issue is the will of God. That's it. Okay, it can be done as a spiritual sacrifice. All right. Let's move on. Rebellion and revival. Man, this is a grieving section. 
What's grieving about it, I'll say more on this in a minute, is how history repeats itself. Here's what I mean. You know, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. A lot of the things we're seeing with today, in churches today, for instance, the outward shell is different. The actual discussions taking place seem different. But the philosophies underlying those discussions are the same as they've always been. And we've talked a number of times here. It's not just, in fact, we were joking about glass pulpits this morning. Just as an example. Okay, let's say, you know, it's, it's, it's ultra cool now to have the big tall table with a latte. And the preacher, he puts it over here. And uh, he just maybe sits on a stool. Most of you wouldn't like that if I did that. But, is it wrong and why? See, this, this is where I think, especially the, the, the newer generation, and again, fundamentalism, started on a decent footing, had a lot of good standards, but I think a lot of times failed to pass the torch of why behind the standards. And so it became in the next generation, we dress this way, we do this way, we look this way, we listen to this music because that's what fundamentalists do. And then the next generation comes and says, if that's the best argument you got, it's a lot easier to get the rock band. But the problems of philosophy, all right, why, let, let's say a guy comes and says, you need to get the little table and put it over there. You know what I'd ask him? Why? What's your reasoning? Well, it, it feels less preachy. It's less intimidating. Okay, so our biblical goal is to not have authoritative teaching here. Why do you want it off to the side? Well, so we can make room for the band. Okay, well, what should be the centerpiece in a church meeting? The preaching of the Word of God. So this becoming less authoritative and shoved in a corner sends a very loud message that we're more interested in making an ungodly world comfortable and not preaching dogmatically. You see, it's the philosophy behind it that's the problem. But if that's not grasped, show me what's wrong with the tall table. Okay, it's the reason behind it that becomes the issue. And a lot of the things we're seeing now, that's the case. And uh, passages like this, yeah, this is old, but it's so fresh. The, the, the reasoning process is the same. It really is. How many of you have ever had a problem in something you owned that got more expensive because you neglected to fix it when you first saw it? Any of you ever guilty of treating your car like it has a virus? Maybe it'll go away. Right? <laughs> I have had problems go away, I'll admit. But generally that doesn't work. Uh, let's say you've got a dripping faucet. You're just going to leave it, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> what's going to happen? It, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more expensive. 
Water always wins. Water always wins. It, water cuts through rocks. Left long enough, it'll sure destroy my cabinets. Um, think about sin for a minute. If a known error persists, some drip, is it ever going to get easier to deal with than now? No, it's not. Is there any such thing as a sin that is inconsequential? Is, is it possible to sin without consequence? It's not. But here's the thing. His flesh will convince you. You don't see the consequence. There must not be one. Hmm? <laughs> what a lie that is. Remember, we were, uh, when we were in Ephesians 4.30 talking about what it means to grieve. Grieve the Holy Spirit and the fact that it's this inward agony. The astounding thing, it actually causes, it doesn't say anger, not the Holy Spirit, it says grieve. It, 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 in other words, one of the motivations to us is we don't want to cause God pain. Remember, we were talking about the question at that point. If it was somehow communicated to you, let's say this week, you could do any sin you wanted, any, and there would be zero consequences except grieving God. Would that be enough to stop you? Should be. Here's the deal with sin. We can choose the sin. Now, here's what you don't choose you don't choose how much control it gains, and you don't choose the consequences. You don't. You sin, you're the servant of sin, you yield your arms, you say, shackle me. And you relinquish control of where your captor takes you. Sin always does that. There's a reason it's called the deceitfulness of sin. It doesn't just defile, it deceives, it tricks you. And this inward traitor has some dandy excuses, doesn't it? It's funny, sometimes I'm having conversations with people working through counseling type issues. And I'll make some statement about some thought process that's probably going on, and they look at you Almost like, how did you know that? And it's not telepathy at all. You know, you know why? Romans 7 lays this out. And I have the same wicked nature. Because those same insidious thoughts from the flesh and the devil, energized by the world, get lobbed at my head too. The justifications... The looking for consequences and not seeing them immediately. But there's always consequences. Uh, the Jews, oh man, if anything Jewish history teaches us is, you depart from the precepts of God at your own peril. That's always the case. But mankind just, it's so hard to see that because it takes on a different face all the time. You see how faithful and good God is consistently, and you see how fickle and wicked people are. We were talking about this in our own family this week. It blows me away. Remember the rebellion of Korah? Moses has to step out and say, if those men die a normal death, God hasn't called me. But if the earth opens up and swallows them alive, 
you're going to know what's true. Well, the earth opens up and swallows them alive. Remember what happens the next day? Here comes more rebels to Moses and say, ye have killed the servants of the Lord. Last I checked, man doesn't have the power to open the earth. <laughs> but that's what a rebel heart does. So look at the leader's report. I mean, Ezra's not here four months. <sighs> when does bad ministry news, when is it ever a good time to hear it? <laughs> Never. But look at these guys, look, look at chapter 9. Now when these things were done, the princess came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. Even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. By the way, why is it, why is it necessary to name them all? Because they believe different things. There were all kinds of innovations that were borrowed in supposed worship. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons. They've mingled the holy seed with the people of those lands. Yea, look at this. The hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. So some of these men come to Ezra and say, we, we have a kind of a problem here. And uh, here's what the problem is. The people have refused to separate from the heathen of the land. They've intermarried with them like God said not to. And... Uh, by the way, the leadership, the spiritual leadership, they're the ringleaders. I, I mean, the first part of that news is bad enough, but the fact that the men that were in leadership were the ringleaders was really a gut punch. I dare say Ezra expected a little better from them. What was their problem? They have not separated themselves. By the way, that word has become a dirty word. But starting with God separating light from darkness in Genesis 1, all the way up to how a church is to conduct itself in Revelation 2 and 3, you see this consistent principle. When God's people refuse to make a distinction between the ways of God and the ways of the world, disaster always follows. Always follows. Not sometimes. Always. But here's the thing, though. Disaster may not follow for decades. But it will follow. And we're seeing the same thing regurgitated today. Constantly. It's a constant drumbeat today. It's unbelievable. Imagine if God had sent them into uh, the land of Canaan and said, hey, listen, it didn't work so well last time, so we're going to try a new philosophy. I want you to go and I want you to interview the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Hivites, and I want you to ask them how they think our temple should be conducted. And uh, when you get kind of a consensus among the people, well, then we'll, we'll create their desires. And then we'll just all worship together. What would have happened? 
I guarantee you there would have been a very full temple area and a complete mix of paganism thrown in. This is exactly what churches are doing today. We talked about philosophies. Adam, you're heading into ministry. You, I don't mean your generation in a bad way, but you know what I mean. The young men who think they're so cutting edge in your generation, their arguments that they think are so brilliant are exactly what the new evangelicals were saying in the 1950s. Exactly. The faces have changed, but the core philosophy is the same. And here's what it is. We refuse to separate from evil. We refuse to defend the faith. We're tired of the world looking down their nose at us, and we want to syncretize religion that is more respectable in the eyes of a changing society. What was their reasoning? What in the world would possess the Jews? Who, by the way, we're not going to get to it this morning. Why did they go to captivity in the first place? The same exact reasons. You can find them listed. Second Chronicles and other places. Same thing. And then they get back into the land. And they're doing the same thing again. What in the world are they thinking? Well, here, here, human nature doesn't change. That's a new day. I, know. I mean, that was then. God was kind of in a bad mood back then. But now we've got the shack to straighten us out. That's the merging churches. Oh, don't get me started on that. But you. So the emerging church of today is just the new face of the evangelical era of the 1950s. It's the logical extension of, of getting off the tracks there. And by the way, the millennial fundamentalist movement is going to end up in the same place. It will, inevitably. I guarantee it. Because it always produces. Because why? What's it predicated on? Why, why shift all the, why, I mean, why the laser lights and everything? Is there something, show me where laser lights are bad. It's a philosophy. We want the world to be comfortable sitting in a church service. We want the world to like us. Humanism is exactly what it is. It is, it's humanism. Which, uh, is, by the way, is nothing new. I, I, if you could have interviewed these Jews back then, you know, these Canaanites... Really, we sit and you know we dialogue and we have coffee and there's really some core values we agree on. We really we we have chosen us in the in the Hittites. We've chosen to focus on the areas of agreement and really harness those. <laughs> well, disaster, disaster, disaster is coming. Uh, but thank God this time it's averted somewhat, which we'll uh, get to next week. But again, this, this is a theme that's repeated over and over and over and over. The, the, the play actors change. The scenery on the stage changes a little bit, but the core reasoning doesn't. I mean, God's people, and by the way, when I say separated from the world, I don't mean snobbishness. Separation is never look down my long, hairy nostrils at people because I'm better than them. God help us from having that mentality. But a gracious firmness says, listen, here's the deal. God is true and every man's a liar. We had, uh, I'll share this with you and I'll be done. I, you know, I get some interesting calls periodically. I had a lady call me a while ago and I, I grieve for this lady. She called and she left about a minute long message. And she explained to me she's 
got a wife, and uh, she feels judged everywhere she goes. And she asked if, if, she, if she could come here and, and be welcome here and not be judged. What's the right answer to that? No, you filthy, abominable heathen. But that's not the right answer. I prayed about that one for a minute. But I called her back. I didn't talk to her. I left a message. But here's what I told her. I said, if you're looking for a church that is going to confirm the direction you're going, this isn't it. We welcome anybody here so long as you want to actually hear what God says. And we're, well, we're, we're willing to walk with you through that. But what we care about here is the Word of God. And we're going to teach all of it, including what it says about how you're living. And we love you and care about you. And that's why we're going to tell you the truth. So if you ask if you'll be welcome here, Yes, as long as you understand our goal is to bring you from where you are to being on page with God, not leaving you where you are and saying it's okay. Well, she never showed up, not surprisingly. But, friends, listen, when, when we try to blend worldliness with the church, nobody wins. The church deteriorates and the world isn't helped. It's not. And no matter how loud they clamor for come be just like us, there's some out there who really want truth. And trust me, they're not impressed with a church that acts just like them. Mm -hmm. What's our paramount issue as a church? What does God think? What does God think? What does the Word of God say? There's one audience, right? Read Revelation 2 and 3 and uh, Christ's conversation with those churches. And how much of it did He say, you failed to be culturally relevant. It was all between he and them. Some of them he said, you're holding doctrinal positions that I hate. And if you don't repent, you're going to be removed out of your candlestick position. Not lose salvation, but you're going to stop being a lighthouse for me. Anyway, we'll get, we'll get more into that last week, but next week. But it is a recurring theme, and the philosophies, the philosophies, the philosophies are so important that underlie it. Not just, not just the what, but the why. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray You'd help us to be a, a Christ-centered, Bible-centered people. Father, I pray that You'd give us a very deep humility that comes from a nearness to You. Lord, as we draw near to You, we can't help but become more holy, but at the same time, how can we not become more humble? Help us to have a graciousness towards the lost, to be able to see right past the exterior, to see a soul for whom Christ died, and to see through the lens of what You can do in that life and what You're willing to do. But again, I pray, give us a spine of steel in standing against evil satanic philosophy. Strengthen us, Lord, and give us eyes to see what's going on around us. In Jesus' name, amen.